Welcome to the Hong Kong History Podcast. We're on episode four. We're going to start around 1870 today and take you right the way through to the First World War. We'll be talking about the emergence of steam and what it was like to suffer a typhoon in those days. All this and many more stories from Stephen Davies coming right up. Well, it's episode four of the Hong Kong History Podcast. I'm here again with Stephen Davies. And uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last podcast for a television delivery, I believe, or it was something that doesn't seem to have appeared yet. No, no, no we've, we've given it away. <laughs> television is, uh, it's antique technology, so we've given it to people who appreciate it. <laughs> okay, so a disruption that was not needed. But anyway, we're going to get back. We were talking about the blockade from 1867 to 1886, a 19-year block blockade. In fact, we probably got to the end of that, um, and we were looking at things being brought out to China, including China itself, <laughs> being brought out to China, being manufactured in Glasgow, and going in the opposite way, tea, Panama hats, and human hair, I think going back to you, were three of the things that you mentioned. Uh, we were talking just sort of getting into steamships and their place in Hong Kong. I think you mentioned that they were about 20 years ahead than, than other places or other major ports in the world. But at the same time, by far the dominant form of transport was through the Chinese junks. Um, shall we pick it up from there? And, sure. and, and what we're going to try and do in this podcast, I think your um, explanation, uh, these podcasts being wandering rambles, about Hong Kong history. I think that was a very good description. We might have to change the name of the podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, we're going to just take it up from there. And as we've said previously, that we don't intend to go through a chronological discussion of Hong Kong, but rather pick up themes. We haven't managed to do that so far because uh, we've just sort of been running with it as it goes uh, with our ramble, and we haven't quite finished rambling yet. So um, as always, Stephen, you're going to be doing most of the talking, and I'll ask a few questions as we go. Um, please, if you're listening to this for the first time discovering it, we're just starting to promote it right now, though by the time you hear this, it'll probably be a couple of weeks down the line. But please share it with friends if you like it and give us a review on whichever podcast app you're using. That's going to help other people discover it. Okay, over to you, Stephen. So we're moving on from the end of the blockade uh, and starting to talk about what happened really between uh, the end of the blockade, which was in the uh, 1880s, um, through probably to the end of the century. Yeah, actually, really through the, the natural period, in a sense, is through to the end of the First World War. And, and this is, <clears throat> in a nutshell, this is the high tide of British imperialism, from which Hong Kong gained hugely, and China a great deal less. I, the, the history of, Hong, of, of China and Western imperialism, I don't think has yet been written, uh, when all the dust has settled and we're maybe a couple of centuries further down track, it probably won't come out looking quite so smutty as it does at, at present because there is no question there was a big issue for China. In effect, do we do what today we call modernise, jump on this industrialization bandwagon and kiss goodbye to the steady and sure ways we've been doing things for almost millennia, certainly for centuries, uh, or, or do we just get like everybody else and, and compete on that stage? And China, it, it was quite unlike Japan in this respect, it, it, it couldn't make up its mind. There was one cohort in the self-strengthening movement that felt that it, it, it should and must, and which was at times extremely radical in what it felt China had to do, which is basically do what the Cultural Revolution later tried to do, which is toss the entire past away and start over. Uh, there were others who were extremely conservative and basically didn't want anything to do with it. And, and that went down, we're talking now, the end of the century with the Boxer Rebellion, which was an attempt in, in effect to stop this whole alien process in its tracks, which was doomed to failure in, in many ways. Um, and then there are the people in the middle, uh, who really kind of felt that China could do this without losing its essence. This is always a difficult path to follow. 
China's still trying to follow it today in its new mode under Xi Jinping, where somehow we can have all the modernization and the machine guns and the space rockets and the satellites and the internet and all of that, and we don't get any of the negative side. Unfortunately, progress isn't like that. Uh, you nearly always get the bad bits as well as the good. And so this late 19th century period is the point where Western imperialism was surging unchecked all over the place. Although wiser minds, even then, were sensing that this was high tide and that things were beginning to ebb. There's a, for fans of Rudyard Kipling, another guy who's got a very bad press until recently, uh, who was a, a brilliant author and a very prescient one, in the year of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, 1897, which is pretty much when the statue that is now in Victoria Park and had been in what was called Statue Square, opposite the Hong Kong Bank, between the bank and Queen's Statue Pier, as it was originally called, uh, that was put in in celebration of the Jubilee, uh, along with a few rather fancy fountains around town because uh, pipe water was not normal in most houses at that point. Uh, Kipling wrote a poem called Recessional, which uh, is without question a sort of Tiresias moment where here the bard of empire is saying, watch it, it's going to catch up with you. Uh, lest we forget, he says. Uh, I, I, I've forgotten all the words. I've, I, it's the preface to my new book, about HMS Tamar and the high tide of empire. And it is this threnody of empire. He's actually basically saying, uh, we're now on the downhill slope. And there's, there's and, and you can actually read, and in my new book, I do read the history of, let's say, 1870s through till 1960s, Hong Kong, as the ebb tide of empire, uh, with the ebb beginning quite slowly, and then hitting peak outflow with the sinking of HMS Tamar and the occupation by the Japanese in 1941. And then after the war, uh, like all tides, tides are, are sine waves. Uh, they, they have a maximum peak flow at half point and then having gained pace up to that point, and then they taper off and slow down as they get down to flat ebb at the end of the tidal sequence. And that's exactly what happened to Hong Kong. We've got this accelerating flow during the 1870s, 80s, 90s, uh, 1900s, through probably till about really the beginning of the First World War. And then the tide begins to turn. Uh, and I, I'll mention this again in a minute, probably, but I'm, you know, I may only mention it now. But it's quite interesting from the point of view because my whole approach is shipping pro uh, in effect. And the First World War is this moment where British shipping in Hong Kong hits its high point. And because during the First World War, British shipping is whipped off to service the insatiable needs of the war machine in Britain, it opens up a gap into which American and Japanese tonnage rush. And from that point onwards... Uh, British, British tonnage never really recovers from that point on. Uh, and by, there's a little, a little recoverage, uh, recovery just after the Second World War. But then it's a really rapid ebb. And by the 1980s, there's virtually no British tonnage at all. And, and can you um, tell us a little bit about what the physical Hong Kong was going through? I mean, in terms of the building, the building out of Hong Kong... Um, during this period. So this is a period of great expansion in yeah. Hong Kong. But, but how did it manifest itself physically? Okay. Um, it, it may be things that we might recognise today. Okay, well, it's, it's expansion and confidence, but it's not really big-time commercial expansion. It's very important to realise during this period that actually all the thrust of commercial and industrial expansion in China, from the point of view of Western imperialism, was in Shanghai. That's where everything was going gangbusters, and industry was beginning to, to grow up. Uh, creation of textile mills, breweries, the introduction of railways, all of this stuff was going on in Shanghai. Hong Kong was basically 
the service depot for all of this because, unlike Shanghai, it was securely British territory. I mean, we now know that it wasn't insecurely British territory, but at the time it felt very secure. And so uh, everything that needed, if you like, the legal cloak and protection of British, of British jurisdiction, ships with flags, banks with their headquarters, shipping companies with their headquarters, all of that would be in Hong Kong, even if actually the bulk of the action might be somewhere else. So shipping company would be headquartered here, but most of its ships would be working out of Shanghai and around the Asian circuit and may not often have come to Hong Kong. Or if they did, they'd have come in on a routine visit in order to go on elsewhere. So this is the point where primarily Hong Kong is a service unit. Even in the shipping world, it's a service unit. This is the moment at which uh, the dockyards begin to grow quite quickly, as does wharfage and stowage. I mean, it's in 1865, for example, that Hong Kong Bank is created, which was specifically needed and seen to be needed to finance expansion in China. That's why it was founded, uh, and to finance the opium trade, but we don't talk about that. Um, so that's, that's the Hong Kong Bank. The Hong Kong Kowloon Wharf and Godown Company is founded in the 1880s to create a long-side berthing for the more effective handling of cargo, which is then going to be distributed into Hong Kong's hinterland, primarily into China, into Guangdong province proper, and distributed up the coast of China. Uh, the Hong Kong Wamper Dock Company, which is founded in the 1860s, doesn't really get on a roll until the 1880s when it starts to build its really big dry docks. And its main dry dock, number one, later called Admiralty Dock, because it needed to be expanded to accommodate larger Royal Naval warships. And so they got a subsidy throughout this period. Even that had to be, it had to go through three lengthenings, eventually cutting right back into the cliff that was behind the Hong Kong Wamper Dock Company. So Hong Kong becomes a shipbuilding, ship servicing, and general financial and, and business servicing centre, much more than it was a production centre. It's not that there wasn't production. One of my favourite outfits, which starts life in Western, uh, in Sai. Uh, between Saing Poon and Weston in the 1860s, which was founded by Russell and Company, and there's still a street called Rope Street, uh, Forbes Street, it's called Forbes Street, after the, the Taipan of Russell and Company at the time. And Forbes Street, there's a rope works. That is taken over by a company called Chuan Tomes, which is kind of big in late 19th, early 20th century history Hong Kong. And they build a, a rope works, which by the 1950s is one of the biggest rope works in the world with a massive rope export business of both natural, of natural fiber ropes because they're getting manila and jute and hemp in from elsewhere. And then by the 1980s, it's disappeared. Uh, they just never made the, uh, the, the, the adaptation into artificial fibers. Uh, and I mean, that's another story about Hong Kong industry. But back to your question. So, yes, this is a period of, of high confidence. You see all kinds of new buildings popping up. Uh, 1870s, there's a sailor's home, handsomely where Western Police Station now is, along with its attached small church, St. Peter's Church. Uh, you see the Union Church completed. In fact, it's moved. It's taken quite literally stone by stone from the junctions of oh, El Elgin Street and another across to the other side of Garden Road where it's rebuilt exactly as it was where it was originally. Uh, you see the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank build their new headquarters building, really flashy, not the, not the big 1935 uh, Art Deco one, but the previous ornate neoclassical building. The waterfront really gets tarted up, particularly with the massive Chater Reclamation, which reclaims all the way from roughly where the Macau Ferry Pier is, right the way uh, to uh, the naval base, HMS Tamar. The whole thing marches from Queen's Road out to Connaught Road, which is the waterfront, and a mass of really flasho buildings gets built, get built. The Queen's and Prince's building, the old Hong Kong club, the old post office, the old, in 1904, the old and rather, rather wonderful Marine Department headquarters, 
all of these buildings are being built. Virtually all of them have disappeared. I mean, it's quite amazing how Hong Kong's high period, this high period in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, of architectural preeminence of colonialism just hit the wall with Hong Kong's economic expansion in the 70s and 80s, and it was all pulled down. So this is a point where Hong Kong is, is expanding and proud imperial building is going on big time. At the same time, all around, Hong Kong is also uh, exhibiting the insecurity of any late imperial system. Because if you have a successful late imperial system, you're the, the object of some jealousy and dislike of other pretenders to the throne. And so what we see in, in the late 19th century in Hong Kong is a sudden massive burst of building of military fortifications. Uh, you get the guns on Mount Davis, the guns down in Le Yumun, the guns up on Devil's Peak. And is, is this a response to a specific threat? or? Well, it's, uh, that's the interesting thing about the, the, the madness of the military mind. The threat is specific largely in the military mind rather than in, in actuality on the ground. The big bogey was Russia. Russia was, 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 it had designs, and we all knew it had designs. And up to a point, it did have designs, because there was this big expansion of the Russians, both southwards from the Caspian Sea, threatening the gates of India, a, a problem that's still going on, which President Trump is trying to solve by withdrawing forces from Afghanistan. But that was a, an issue back there in the 1880s, 1890s. And it was also expanding into the Far East. This is around about the time when the Trans-Siberian Railway starts to be built. So it's got its designs in, in northern China, and there was a genuine fear amongst the geostrategic hierarchy in Hong Kong, in the colonial office, and in the war office, and in the Royal Naval Navy's Admiralty, that Russia had designs on Hong Kong. And the key thing to remember is this is before the new territories. And China was very vulnerable. There's the most miraculously wonderful and at the same time awful map that a friend of mine had a copy of not long back, made uh, and published in a French newspaper in, I think, the early, 19th, early 20th century. It may have been the late 19th, which quite literally is a map of China carved up into spheres of influence blatantly, uh, it, since it was published in France, of course, vast amounts of China are purple for France. A tiny bit of China is red for Britain, which is Hong Kong. And there's another bit for Russia, another bit for Germany. And so there is this sense that China is weakening rapidly. And this is the moment to grab your bit and make your money. In fact, China was not weakening that much. Uh, the founding of the Maritime Customs, which I think we talked about last time. Yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, the fact that that had done a great deal to stabilize China's finances. So they, they didn't have huge amounts of money, but they certainly had sufficiently reliable public finances to begin the whole process of modernization. Uh, a more modern navy, a more modern army, railways. It's slow. It meets lots of checks on the way. But it's happening. More modern industries, iron, iron or uh, uh, steel works, iron works, coal mines. China is beginning to industrialize. And so the fear that the Western world was going to carve it up like they just finished carving up Africa. Because don't forget, 1880, Congress of Berlin, bunch of whiteies sit around a table and they quite literally slice up Africa amongst themselves. Nobody asked any Africans whether they thought this was a good wheeze. They just did it. And then Africa became this site of absolute exploitation and occasional inter-imperial squabbles. And so there was a clear sense that this could happen to China. Uh, how realistic it was, separate question. But it was believed, and there was this genuine belief that possibly the French, but much more likely the Russians, would seek to bring pressure to bear on China to get hold of the new territories when they would have had Tolo Harbour and Mers Bay and Hong Kong would have been cut off. 
And so there was this genuine sense that they might do that. They might even take the Brits on to push them out of Hong Kong. So there is this rejigging of the colonial defence policy towards Hong Kong beginning in the 1880s. And by the late 1890s, they're building all this new military infrastructure because at the same time, God, there are so many layers in this. At the same time, what we're looking at is this incredible acceleration of the processes of industrialization, particularly in the military world, where when Hong Kong was annexed by the Brits in 1841, the average heavy weapon was a 32-pound cannon, which could shoot to a maximum range of maybe three kilometers on a good day with a fair wind. Accurately, probably not much more than about 300 meters. And that was the weapon of the day. So if you look at all the early Hong Kong fortifications, they're Murray Battery, Wellington Battery, Crown Battery, they're all just around the central area because that's the limit of what could be defended. It's not much more than that when the Kowloon Peninsula is annexed in 1860, by which time they've managed to pretty much have all of the Central Harbour area within gunshot. But at that point, things begin accelerating madly uh, with the invention of rifled shells, breech-loading weaponry. Suddenly, the, the range that these things can get out to goes from three kilometres to seven or nine kilometres. By the turn of the century, it's nearer 12 to 15 kilometres. By the end of the period I'm talking about, which is the end of the First World War, you've got guns that can throw shells 25 kilometres. This makes an enormous difference to how you plan your defences. And so this, the 1880s, 1890s is the midpoint where guns are able to shoot much further than ever before. So the defensive perimeter moves out to the western extremes of the island. And then when the new territories uh, are acquired, then they expand the batteries over onto Pottinger and Gough batteries on Devil's Peak. And so Hong Kong has got this much wider defence perimeter, at which time all the panic about Russia rapidly subsides with that cathartic moment for Westerners when Russia is absolutely trounced by the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War 1904-1905, which was a real wake-up call for the, for the Royal Navy. The thing I really love, this is the great thing about history, there's all kinds of wild side channels, but what the Russo-Japanese War did was bring radio to Hong Kong because one of the, one of the things that everybody realised was that radio was a new weapon. The Royal Navy had been trialling it in the 1890s, but it was pretty unreliable. But the press, that feisty, interested party in the goings-on of humanity, realised that the Russo-Japanese War was going to be hot news. So out of Hong Kong, they chartered a small passenger liner. The Times of London chartered this small passenger liner and bought the latest and greatest radio equipment from the makers, Siemens, I think they were called, in the United States of America, which was fitted to this passenger liner. And they thunder off up to the site of the, of the, of, of the Russo-Japanese War and start broadcasting battle reports and vessel movement reports. And the Japanese go completely troppo because, as far as they're concerned, this is the equivalent of espionage and it's threatening their war effort. They actually arrest the ship. Um, it, it eventually gets away, but everybody realises discretion is the better part of valour. But what this does is it makes the Royal Navy aware of the power of radio as a communications medium in warfare. So the first radio that comes to Hong Kong goes into Cape Dagula, run by the Royal Navy. And it's not till the very end of the First World War, 1915, that the government post office takes over the radio and starts to run it as a civilian outfit. Can, can we talk about the leasing of the new territories? Kind of what, what led to that and, and then how did it come about? What led to it basically was chronic weakness in, in China and the Russians, in effect, uh, driving a, a hard bargain with the Chinese, which, if I've got it right, uh, got them the concession at 
Port Arthur. I, I may get the timing sequence. I'd have to look it up on Google. One of the things I keep telling my students is, do not clutter your brain with trying to remember detail that you can easily look up. Just remember where you need to look it up, because that's where the facts are. If you litter your brain with all this stuff that you just have to remember, mere facts, you'll never get on top of anything. So I can't remember the exact sequence. But it certainly has to do with this general uh, seeking of strategically important points. And Russia gets to get Mukden, uh, now called Chaguan, I think, uh, in, and gets Harbin as well, which is the extension of the Trans-Siberian Railway down through northern China towards Beijing and it's into to, Manchuria. To Dalian, isn't it? And then eventually down to Dalian, yeah. which they call Port Arthur. Yeah. The Brits think, oh my God, Port Arthur, we need something to counter that. So they get this concession in 1898 also of Wei Hai Wei in Shandong, right on the northern tip of the Shandong Peninsula, which becomes this British leased enclave. The terms of the lease are fascinating that the Brits hold on to it as long as the Russians are in Port Arthur. When the Russians leave Port Arthur, then the Brits have got to give up Wei Hai Wei. Didn't quite happen like that, but <coughs> close. So in this general period of weakness, when everybody is muscling for concessions, the Germans get Jingdao, and by force majeure thereafter, an awful lot of Shandong province. The French get Fort Bayard. This is one of the great forgottens of this period. Uh, Fort Bayard, because don't forget, the French at this point <coughs> had won a war, the Sino-French War of 1884-85, which actually saw, I would guess, <coughs> looked at purely objectively militarily, something of a stalemate, um, the French got a bloody nose in northern Vietnam. Uh, but in, in the end, uh, China didn't have strength in depth. It, it was pretty good at first encounter, but strength in depth wasn't there. So the Taiwanese took the Chinese on, destroyed the navy that the French themselves had built in the arsenal of Maui in Fujian. The French had built this dockyard, had trained all the shipbuilders, had helped design, arm and engine the ships. Uh, and then in 1884, they swept in and sank the lot. <laughs> I mean, the stupidity of military activity is slightly beyond belief. So this is a period of China just being shoved around by people who'd got weaponry that they had not got. And so... The French get Fort Bayard, Zhangzhou, down just on the eastern neck of the Leijiao Peninsula above Hainan, okay. which, which was their little enclave, um, and which they hoped would allow them effectively to direct all the trade from Yunnan and Guangxi Chuan, and they hoped uh, Sichuan, and that whole western area of Chinese provinces, what they wanted was to direct them into the railway that they were building, which came down the Red River Valley, and therefore would exit from Haiphong. So that would be France's stealing. And they wanted part of that pattern to be uh, from Wuzhou westwards on the West River, which the Brits were beginning to run down to Hong Kong via the West River coming, coming all the way down. Hong Kong built its first stern wheelers uh, for that run. The only two stern wheelers ever built, ever operating in China, were built in Wan Chai by George Fennick and Company. One was called the Nanning. I can't remember what the other one was called. <clears throat> they were not successful, although they keep running for quite a long time. So there's this muscling for territory. And the Brits just see this as a moment to seize what they felt they'd always basically needed, which was the security of all of the New Territories Peninsula uh, on the south side of Baoan, uh, Xinan County, which would then give them a buffer against any kind of incursions from the north and complete control over Victoria Harbour, which is, which is actually, if you think about it, one of the, the keys to that, which proved to be the case in the Second World War, is that ring of hills yes. which surrounds above Kowloon. And interestingly, the first defences that the Brits build, they build there in the early early nineteenth, uh, early 20th century, which were a series of 
redoubts, blockhouses, built on the pattern that they had just perfected fighting the Boer War in South Africa. And all of them, you can still wander that path, uh, which is basically where the gin drinkers line was subsequently built. But actually on the crest, you can still find the ruins of some of these blockhouses, which were built as the outer line of defence for Kowloon shortly after the new territories became British. And, I mean, I'm, I'm also a map historian, and, and the joy of all of this is watching how the new territories is mapped. Hong Kong doesn't have the facilities. Most of the mapping, topographic mapping of Hong Kong, was always done by the army, by the Royal Engineers, and they didn't really have the personnel to do all of this. So the Brits bring in two guys from India, Mr. Tate, after whom Tate's Ken is named, and I can't remember what the other one was called, and they do a sort of three-year crash job surveying the new territories, uh, which becomes the basis of the maps here of Lamar Island, for example. All the DD lot maps are maps produced after the topographic survey of Mr. Tate and his mucker, when uh, they then got down to the nitty-gritty of surveying village plots. Uh, and how, how did they? I mean, how did they persuade the Chinese to sign the lease? I mean, I, basically, this is just bullying. I mean, uh, you've got an option here. You can lease it to us or there'll be trouble. I mean, China at this point, don't forget, that there was the indemnity of all these wars and the Chinese maritime customs, some of those customs were permanently earmarked to pay off debt, which China had magically incurred as a result of somebody else bullying them. It's kind of protection racket in effect. And so they just didn't feel that they got an option. Uh, so and and a lease, if you like, it's a least worst solution, uh, as opposed to having something taken in perpetuity. Uh, you can you can sign a lease, and at least you're going to get a, a second visit in 99 years time. Now on your screen here, mm. Stephen, we're, we're looking at your computer across uh, the way, saying the decline of traditional Chinese sail in Hong Kong. Uh, so Hong Kong foreign going fleet. Uh, we've got two lines, a blue line and a red line going down. Oops. Maybe you could... Uh, what am I doing here? Oh, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Okay. That's a little yeah, bit about yeah. that. Okay, so I, I, this is an interesting thing because there's, there's another graph up here, actually, on the left, on the right, which shows uh, the, the Western fleet. And you can see that Western sailing vessels, so that's the square riggers that everybody thinks about when they think about the 19th century, clippers, stately vessels soaring the oceans. And you can see how in 1840, they're, they're over 90%, 97%, 98% of all Western vessels coming to Hong Kong are sail, and a piddling percentage uh, just... Looks like, like about just over 0%, isn't it? Yeah, I can't. I, it won't even. It won't even paint. It's just over zero. It's about one percent, and you can see this gradually building. In eighteen fifty, it's up. It's up to ten percent, and then it builds really rapidly. Steam vessels are up to forty-five percent by eighteen sixty, and by eighteen seventy, steam vessels, Western steam vessels, are already sixty-five percent, nearly sixty-five percent, sixty-four percent, and sail is dropping off the map. Now, this is it's fascinating because it's a good 20 years before this crossover happens in the Western world. If you look at stats for London or Liverpool, uh, this crossover moment when uh, steam-powered vessels become more numerous than sailing vessels doesn't really happen until between 1890 and 1900. So the Western world, sail seeds to steam in Asian waters remarkably early. When we talked about this in the last episode, mm. you also mentioned the the vast numbers of small sailing junks that were shipping small, uh, well, that's, small amounts. So that's the key thing. This is, as it is, steam and western sail at Hong Kong. So this is basically the maritime world viewed through the lens of what the western world saw shipping. Down here, that other graph you were looking at, is... The real world of Hong Kong sale, and this graph begins in 1870, so 30 years after Hong Kong is founded in its modern guise, 91.4% of vessels calling in Hong Kong, actual physical vessels calling in Hong Kong, 
are actually junks, traditional Chinese sailing junks. In 1870, it's still over 90% of the vessels, but it's only 53% of the tonnage. Now, what this tells you is actually they're all quite small. And this is a feature of, of the junk sail world. They're always small vessels. They're carrying a lot of cargo. One of the reasons why they're going to get overtaken by iron and steel Western ships in the end is that these steamships are getting bigger and bigger and carrying more and more cargo. So you see the number of junks beginning to slide, but it slides quite slowly. In 1900, you still got 76% of vessels coming into Hong Kong are junks, and that's now down to only 18.6% of the tonnage. So they're, they're, the volume of, of goods that they're bringing into Hong Kong is falling faster than their numbers. And that, that becomes, the, the, the fall is really quick down to 1910. At that point, it plateaus because of the First World War through, so they hold at about a bit over 50% of all vessels. And likewise, they hold their tonnage at around 10%. And then after the First World War, after 1920, junks just drop off the map. They're down to only 40% of vessels, 32% of vessels by the beginning of the Second World War, and they never recover. After the Second World War, that's it. And their tonnage by this point is down to 1.1%. So if you were sitting atop of Lion Rock and looking over Victoria Harbour back in the 1860s, what, what, would, you be, what would you be looking at? You're looking at, actually, you're looking rather at what you'd see at street level, two streets back from the waterfront. You're looking at a segregated world. Uh, two streets back from the waterfront, you're looking at Taiping Shan and the other places where Chinese people live, and you're looking up at mid-levels and the peak where the, where, where the whiteies live. Well, if you go out in the harbour and you look at the harbour, clustered around Saiyimpun, Kennedy Town, in what was called the junk anchorage, you see trading junks, all anchored. All the way along the waterfront, quite literally, cheek by jowl, are all the little lighters which are carrying goods backwards and forwards from ships and junks to, the go to be offloaded into the go-downs that are just on the other side of the road. Out in the western anchorage proper, which is most of the harbour you can see, that steamships and the occasional, still, large sailing ship, particularly if you looked over by Stonecutters Island, there you'd see often three large vessels, which are actually windjammers. Hong Kong had its own little fleet of windjammers. One of them was called Brilliant. I can't remember what the other two were called off the top of my head. They were big. They were sort of 4,000, 5,000 tonne windjammers. And their job was, they were oil tankers. They brought, they weren't, they didn't have tanks because oil tankers don't really appear in, in their modern type floating tank guys until well, 1890s, 1900s, and mostly in the Western world. What these are doing, they're carrying what's called case oil. Now, if you go look at a Chinese uh, hardware store or some uh, Chinese provision stores, stacked outside on the pavement these days often, you'll, you'll see kind of square tins. Uh, they're slightly taller than their square, but these are these these go back to the very earliest days of the petroleum industry. They were called cases, and these into them were put paraffin. This was a rev revolution. Hong Kong was responsible for a revolution in heating and lighting in Guangdong Province, because these vessels would come in from California, loaded with case oil. Uh, they would come. Uh, four strapped together in a square, sat on top of each other, and that the, the casings, I think it could be stacked four deep, uh, and then the strength of the wall would, would hold them up. Um, and, and that would come in, that would be offloaded into small junks, uh, often barges which would be towed by a steam tug, and taken up the West River, up the East River, up the North River, and then distributed out into Guangdong province. And for the first time in China's history, people had a means of lighting their shacks at night, their, their, their houses, 
could be lit at night with a paraffin light. And for the first time, they didn't have, which is a, a scourge in the developing world even today, this burning of charcoal and wood inside to cook with, which leads to all kinds of respiratory diseases, both in the people who do the cooking and in the kids who are near them. This was a bit solved by being able to have paraffin-fired cookers. So here's Hong Kong via these errant vessels by the end of the 19th century, Western sailing vessels, which are bringing in case oil for, uh, for China. And so, so that, that's, that's one part, that one very small part of the western part of the harbour. And then towards the central area, what you'll see is the big passenger liners of Messagerie Maritime, uh, Rubatino, the Italian company, Norddeutsche Lloyd, the German company, uh, NKK, the Japanese company, P&O, Canadian Pacific Railways, and then uh, the Pacific Mail Steamship Company. All of these big passenger ships were coming in and they would normally have their own dedicated boys in the Central Harbour area. And they were carrying, and here's another graph, all these passengers. And you can see um, the passengers here. In 1841, oops, uh, you've got 100 passengers a day going through Hong Kong um, and just one vessel per day. By 1900, you've got 5,500 passengers a day passing through with 64 vessels. Now, most of those are actually ferries going up and down the West River and so forth. But every day, there'd probably be, of those 64 vessels, four or five liners, which are heading up to Shanghai or coming back from Shanghai and then going on via India to Europe or via the Red Sea to Europe, to usually to Trieste, Marseille, or on round to London or Southampton, and usually always via Saigon or Singapore. Um, or going across the Pacific to San Francisco or Vancouver. So this was, it was big business. And you can see uh, you've got, by this time, you've got 5,500 passengers a day. I think I've got a, here we go, yeah, passenger movement per day. And this is growing and growing and growing. And you see this graph continuing to grow, passenger movement per day, right through until about, about 1955, when suddenly some idiot invents the 707. And and from that point onwards, it's, I mean, quite literally, passenger traffic disappears in a matter of five years. It's gone. Just like that. And before we leave this uh, period, because we're getting towards the, towards the end, we've got, still got about 15 minutes or so to, to get to our hour, um, I'd like to, to just sort of talk about this period uh, in terms of disasters, uh, maybe natural disasters, typhoons that have come through, the, 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 sort of the vulnerability. We all know, living in Hong Kong now, about the typhoons mm. coming, and we don't really think much about them. Um, but what it was like to live through a typhoon at that particular point in time. Uh, and, and also the health problems. We talked about cholera in the yeah. last episode uh, and the problems with cholera, but there were other things as well, I sure. believe, at that time. Okay, let's deal with typhoons first. And the, the most important thing to realise is, is how young meteorology is as a science. The director of the Royal Observatory, uh, an expat Dane who'd become Britified, uh, called uh, William de Burke, who took over as director of the Royal Observatory, the first director in 1883, he fancied himself as a great expert on what typhoons were. And he published a book called On the Law of Circulating Storms or something. And there was a bunch of these books. There's a wonderful one called The Sailor's Horn Book, by a chap called Piddington, uh, published in India a few years beforehand. But there's lots of these people trying desperately to understand what is this damn thing? How does it work? Some of the great work was done, he's my favourite fellow, a chap called Redfield in the States. And he's not a meteorologist. I mean, I forget what he was. He was a land surveyor. But he noticed that when a big storm had gone through the northeast USA, and basically a typhoon is just a kind of it's a tropical depression, uh, very much like the temperate depressions that roar through the North Atlantic. Well, he noticed that all the trees that had been blown down as this storm went through were pointed in different directions around the centre of the storm. So he, he's the first person to realise that a storm, it's a rotating phenomenon. And he saw this from fallen trees. 
and so begins to theorise this. And people are theorising, but they're not really sure what the phenomenon is. And so they're not able to, and of course there's no forecasting, they're not able to give any kind of warning. They can reconstruct, there's a marvellous fellow called Father Chevalier, who ran the Jesuit observatory in Xuzhaoui, uh, in, in Shanghai, whom de Burke hated. It was, he was Catholic and French. Oh, golly, definitely unreliable. Uh, and so they, they would not cooperate. And worse, they were Catholic and Spanish in Manila. So heavens, you know, um, there was a failure of cooperation. But even if they cooperated, forecasting was virtually non-existent. And so the best they could give was a few hours' warning. In 1874, an absolutely horrific typhoon rips through Hong Kong and causes five, 6,000 deaths and forces the government to start thinking about all the incredibly vulnerable people who live on sampans and junks. And out of that comes the Causeway Bay Typhoon Shelter. And then, in 1906, comes what's called the Bingwu, because typhoons didn't get names, as they now have, until after the Second World War, which all came down to Second World War forecasting. Uh, in Hong Kong, they would be called, if they were called anything amongst Hong Kong people, by the, the year of the reign of the emperor. And it's the Bingwu year, is 1906. So the 1906 typhoon, this one... Absolutely no, with it, two hours warning that something untoward was happening. It rips through, it's all, it's done and dusted between seven in the, about seven in the morning and 11.30 in the morning. Everything has happened. And it's estimated 10,000 people died. And, and how are they dying? I mean, they're, 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 they're dying because they're drowning. Buildings are collapsing on top of their heads because buildings were not very strongly built. Uh, roofs were being ripped off. But mostly this is people in sampans who, which are just, they're dashed up against stone walls or each other and they're just pulverised into bits or they're capsized by the storm. I mean, Hong Kong has got gazillions of these damn things and they have nowhere to go. They, they have no power. There's no engine that allows them to chug for safety. So if they've not managed to get themselves into a, sh a shelter, and there isn't one, because Causeway Bay very rapidly fills up. And then Aberdeen's too far away. Uh, and we've only got two hours. It's going to take you two hours to get to Aberdeen. And so desperate damage was done. Worse, the winds were blowing from the east. So everybody who was on the Yamade shore was on what sailors call a lee shore and were just pulped uh, against the walls. And there are pictures of the north shore, of, I mean, the wind was kind of slightly north. Sorry, it was a west. It was a, coming out of the west, so it was a, a westerly wind. And on on both on the on the Yamade shore and on the north shore of Hong Kong Island, there are quite literally you can see in the photographs maybe twenty five to fifty meters out from the shore, it's just floating wreckage, nothing else, just devastation, and that's what drove a pressure for building the Yamate Typhoon Shelter. But it gives you a sense of the colonial government's priority, but above all, the sense of priority of Hong Kong's business community, which is always fixated on making money for itself, that the storm happens in 1906, and the Yamate Typhoon Shelter opens 12 years later in 1918. And what happens if you're out at sea and you get hit by one of these typhoons? Uh, you sink to your knees and you pray because it's, it's pure good fortune. If you've got a well-found vessel and you're able to secure it against the punishment of the waves, you can probably come out the other end uh, like you've been through the wash and dry cycle of a washing machine in some disarray, but your vessel is still afloat. In a ship, by and large, you try and get to sea. Because if you can, you've got a chance of riding it out. If you stay in harbour, you will almost certainly drag your anchor and fetch up on the rocks. And in those days, almost nobody could swim. Swimming was just not anything anybody did. And, and the, the, the passenger ships as well, how, how would they fare? They were generally large enough and well-officered enough for there to be few casualties. Some of the ferries got overwhelmed, but they would generally be the ones that not, weren't very well run. 
that they were being run on a, on, on a couple of cents and, and a prayer uh, because money was being made out of them. But generally speaking, uh, the, the passenger boats were away on their ordinary occasions and they don't seem to have suffered unduly badly. In the 1874, one of, one of the uh, Pacific Mail Steamship Company passenger ships got, uh, got wrecked, um, the Alaska. But in general, they seem to have fared okay. And even when, if they didn't, they were generally big enough to just get stranded on the rocks and they're a write-off, but nobody's going to die. Small sampan, your matchwood. Okay. So that's one side. And then the other side is, of course, that you said, disease. At this moment, public health is virtually non-existent. A man called Chadwick had come through Hong Kong in the 1880s and made lots of recommendations about drainage and public health and hygiene and redesigning houses and so forth for better ventilation, better cleanliness. And he was happily ignored because what he was recommending was going to cost money. And the Hong Kong government was always starved of funds by the colonial office. It was meant to pay for itself. Uh, but its business community then as now is not unduly anxious to pay the taxes that will favour anybody but themselves. And so not a lot gets done. And then I think it's in 1892, uh, the bubonic plague gets on a roll in China. 1894, it arrives in Hong Kong and it just sweeps through uh, Taiping San and causes untold death. I think something like 800, 900 deaths in a matter of a couple of months. And it, it then comes back in recurring ways from 1894 right the way through to the last visit, major visitation of the plague is in 1920-something. So plague becomes a major problem until public health and hygiene gets adequately sorted. It doesn't impact quite so badly because one of the outcomes of the 1894 plague was the raising and the rebuilding of Taiping San. So if you go down below Hong Kong U today and eastwards from Hong Kong U into what used to be Taiping San, you'll find First Street, Second Street, Third Street, High Street, whatever it is, street, a straight checkerboard pattern, which is classic urban renewal after all of Taiping Shan had quite literally been bulldozed. So in the next episode, which will be out next week, hopefully we're going to look at the First World War and its aftermath. Um, I like to say that we're, we're looking for a sponsor, or we may still be looking for a sponsor. You, uh, if you have an interest in getting some publicity, please let us know. We're just looking to cover the costs of running this podcast. You'll find more information on us at uh, www.thehongkonghistorypodcast.com uh, where you'll find a little bit of information on Stephen as well, Stephen and myself as well. For now, that is it. Thank you as always, Stephen, for a fantastic conversation. And uh, we'll talk again. We'll have another ramble next week. <laughs>